0: This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
1: In the last episode, we took a deeper dive into the investigation that took place after the Stocks family murders. In this episode, we'll take a look at both the prosecution and the defense teams that worked on the case. We will
0: be hearing from Keith Anthony, Kelly Cunningham, Mark Buffalo, Heath's aunts Bonnie and Janice, Matt Carter as well as Lance Womack, who was the lead investigator working with Mack on Heath's case. Lance's interview
1: was another one that was super interesting. He invited us over to his house as well. He had a beautiful house and a beautiful backyard, and that's actually where we had the interview because he was having some work done on his house. So we sat outside in the backyard and the birds were chirping. There were also contractors there working And they were cutting tiles and stuff. And I remember us kind of looking at each other, kind of worried about how the interview was going to sound because we heard the saw grinding and the birds chirping. And I think there was a squirrel rustling in
0: the leaves or something like that. And I had just bought some new recording equipment. So we were trying it out and thankfully it worked out pretty well. turned out pretty good, but you'll probably hear the birds chirping when Lance is talking. And that, that whole situation was really kind of cool, too, because Lance had worked on it extensively as an investigator. And so he really wanted to talk with us. And so the morning of his interview, he texted me and said that he had hurt his back. And so he wasn't able to drive to come meet us, but he still wanted to do the interview. So we went back and forth a little bit and then just decided to go to his house instead. He said, come on over, we can sit in the back. So we gave it a shot. I think it worked out. Yeah, I would say so. It was very interesting. So can we start by, uh, he can tell us your name and where you're from.
2: Lance A. Womack, and I live in Little Rock, Arkansas and have for the past several decades. I was the senior investigator for the Arkansas Public Defender Commission uh, Capital Conflicts and uh, Appellate Office, so I, uh, I was the lead investigator for us on this case. At that time, I had I was hired there in 1994 and right now I've worked dozens of capital murder cases and there's a huge distinction between capital murder and a, and a, a regular homicide. None of them are regular, but capital means the state is seeking the death penalty. And I worked dozens of capital cases and had a lot of experience there. And at that point, I think 97, I think I'd just been there for two or three years, but that's all we did was capital murder investigation.
0: Okay, so jumping back to 97, how did you become part of Heath's legal team?
2: Well, uh, Mac was the supervising attorney and he was assigned the case and he said, let's go.
0: Had you and Mac worked together before? Yes. I don't know,
2: a lot of cases. How was that? Yeah, we worked together. They called us Heckle and Jekyll because we spent so much time together. And when you're working, especially murder cases, and you're out on the street, it's almost like who you're with. It's, it's almost like they're your partner in a police, except we didn't have any backup and we didn't have a radio. It was just he and I out there, and we trusted each other. We were both armed and knew how to use them, and it was a very exciting job. <laughs>
0: it sounds like it.
2: At times, a little too exciting, and I enjoyed the work. I guess I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie and you have to be. I'm not being melodramatic here. Max dad uh, asked us one time if we got combat pay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had to go into the some of the worst hoods, not only in this state, but uh, when we were doing, sometimes our investigations would carry us into other states. So you just had to be on your toes, and it was dangerous, and it was very delicate you know you you never know what's on the other side of that door that you're knocking on in the middle of the hood or in the middle of a trailer park where you smell meth being cooked (laughs) you know etc and i'm trying not to be melodramatic but yet as factual as i can be
1: So we left off on the last episode where Heath is arrested and charged with three counts of capital murder. And he's then assigned a public defender who is Edgar Thompson. And Edgar is somebody who's been on the legal scene in Lone Oak for several years. And because of that, he has worked closely with Judge Walls as well. And one interesting thing is that Heath told us that he had mentioned the abuse from Jack to Edgar. And Edgar's response is,
0: that's something you might want to keep under your hat, son. Another interesting point on that is one of the questions Edgar Thompson asked him was if he had slept with farm animals or his sister. I have not been involved in a lot of murder investigations, but I would think that's probably not a question that comes up very often. I wouldn't think so.
1: And immediately my thought is, like we mentioned, he had ties to Judge Walls and is familiar with the Walls family. And that doesn't really seem like a question you would ask unless you have some
0: kind of knowledge of what Jack has been up to. That's a solid point because it makes you think about the books again. The kind of books that were turned over to Charles Peckett eventually that Jack had given someone to hold on to. Like we've mentioned, a lot of incest and a lot of
1: bestiality. So it's kind of coming full circle. Edgar Thompson was not certified in death penalty cases. So Mac Carter was assigned to the case as well to work alongside of him.
0: Mac was from Little Rock. He had many years of experience with this. So while Edgar couldn't sit first chair, Mac certainly could. And so he came down from Little Rock to Lone Oak and started working on the investigation. Which is an interesting dynamic because obviously Little Rock
1: is a much bigger city than Lone Oak. So having lawyers and investigators come down from
0: that bigger city to a smaller city probably made some people a little bit anxious. I would imagine it did, especially when you have the entire Walls family dynamic. They've been running the town for decades and now they have these lawyers from Little Rock coming in to more or less look over their shoulder.
1: Yeah, just a lot of eyes on them and a
0: spotlight being shown from people outside the town. I really enjoyed hearing the stories from Mac and Lance about the first time they met Edgar Thompson. It seems like Edgar knew who they were, knew who Mac was at least, but I guess he didn't know what he looked like. I forgot about that.
1: That was definitely an interesting part of the interview when Mac relayed
0: that story to us. So kind of jumping back to when you first took on Heath's case, what was the reception like when you arrived?
3: Oh, it was strange, humorous almost. I don't know what started it, but the local public defender, Mr. Thompson, there was some type of conflict or something, or possibly I, I was appointed to it, and I started filing publicity motions, Well, I was wanting to control publicity, and uh, yeah, motion to control prejudicial publicity. I can't remember what started it, but there was some correspondence, I believe, by me to Lone Oak County. I know Judge Hanshaw was not crazy about my office at the time, because i tried another death case after this, but it was a local case of capital murder, and state was seeking death penalty. It was a full-on trial, There was like a series of cases in Lonoke County, but Judge Hansall, you know, you've got these Little Rock loggers coming in and nobody likes that poking around their local normal way of doing business. I remember being, showing up at the arraignment, and Lance and I were there, and Mr. Thompson walked up to us. He had never met me. I think he and I possibly had had some heated conversations on the phone about something, about me filing the motions, or I can't remember exactly what started it, actually, but it seemed unreasonable to me, but he immediately met lance and then started cussing matt carter that damn matt carter's poking his nose into stuff it proceeded to just cuss matt carter and then he i haven't introduced myself and i'm just, stand, just standing there just kind of grinning at him and introduce myself hi i'm matt carter with the public commission oh oh okay well but uh, it was strange uh, uh, Edgar could just get excited sometimes, he was definitely excited about that. I still don't know why or how that started. We proceeded to prepare for trial, and if he knew of anything, he didn't tell me.
0: Lance also shared with us his experience on meeting Edgar Thompson for the first time and what it was like when he got to town.
2: When you get outside of Little Rock in these uh, small rural communities, you're in another world. They do not like those Little Rock lawyers coming in. Everybody was very guarded. We could, we didn't get much cooperation. Even the public defender, Edgar, when we first met him, he started bad-mouthing Mac, not knowing that Mac was Mac. And, and then Mac said, wait a minute, I'm Mac Carter. He went, Oh, and he was like, oh, man, you talk about getting off on the wrong foot. And this guy is, we're on the same team. We're on, we have the same goal. Well, that's what the reception was like. Cool, cold, uncooperative, bad.
0: So after the introductions had been done and everybody was now aware of who everybody else was, They started working on the case. And I don't think the small town was very excited to have the big shot Little Rock lawyers coming into their town.
1: No, they were not excited about it at all. And we've actually read through a lot of Lance's handwritten notes where he talks about trying to get information and they're reaching out to different parties and just having a really hard time getting what they need in order to work the case.
2: I remember him interviewing people without us or even telling us, I think, was even worse because Matt could have said, all right, that's fine, but in this case, he would have never said that. So that would have pissed him off. I do remember that there were, I think, more than one where he interviewed a witness, sua sponte, if you will.
0: Why do you think that Edgar wasn't forthcoming with you
2: guys? (laughs) You know... Pick an answer. Why do you think? It could be he just didn't want us meddling. He might have been told by another higher legal official to back off. And I hate to say that he may have gotten paid, but you could get paid in a lot of ways besides money.
0: There's memos that Mac had sent to his secretary and to Lance saying, be careful of this. They're not giving us what we need. I've been trying to do this. They've changed dates. So it seems like they're desperately trying to keep up with what the local attorneys are doing, which has to be frustrating if you think about it, because these guys come in to do their job. It's a death penalty case, potentially. It hasn't been decided if he was going to recommend the death penalty or not, but they had to act as if it was. So it's almost like a chase that they're having to be part of to even get the information they need.
1: Yeah, they're definitely met with a little bit of resistance at every turn. They're having to submit and resubmit multiple requests for things, and they're receiving no response or partial responses, and they're just not getting what they need.
0: Or they're asking for files, they receive half the files, then they complain to the judge about it, and the judge says, well, they're behind a little bit, you know, just ask them again. They'll get it as soon as possible. So I have to make a film reference. Twin Peaks. If you've seen Twin Peaks, there's an outside investigator that is sent into this small town to investigate the murder of Laura Palmer. And when he's there, it's a little sheriff's office. There's a secretary sitting there. The investigator from out of town comes in and he's asking him questions, telling him who he is. They're not responding to him at all. She sits there chewing gum, laughing, telling him there's old coffee he can drink. And then she and the sheriff just laugh together about this guy. So to me, that just kind of Really seems kind of like a Twin Peaks moment. One of the memos we have here is from Mac Carter to Betsy Johnson. And the subject is a phone conversation with Edgar Thompson. And it is dated March 24th, 1997. And it says, I talked to Edgar today about his feelings for what's going to happen with stocks. Here's what he said The judge and Larry Cook are in the middle of a nasty name calling contest. It seems that Judge Hanshaw thinks Larry's afraid to try cases and that Cook and his staff are incompetent when they do try them. Apparently too, the judge and Larry's victim assistance coordinator have had some misunderstanding because a judge has openly called her a liar and has created another problem between the judge and prosecutor. In light of the above mentioned tiff, Edgar thinks that if we back off, we'll get a better deal for Heath in the long run. If we try to make something happen before the judge and Larry get their problems worked out, or before Larry convinces the judge that it's none of his business which cases he tries, we might not get as good as an offer. He thinks nobody is in a hurry with the stocks trial and won't be until another trial they're working on is over with. Edgar believes the other trial will go first, which won't be anytime soon, so that Edgar can then be death certified by the time Heath comes up for trial. The bottom line is the judge, according to Edgar, hates this commission and once Edgar certified ASAP so he won't have to fuck with us anymore. Also, Edgar suggests we handle the judge with kid gloves, because there's this whole string of tragic illnesses, deaths, etc. in his family that he's having to deal with, which makes him a real horse's ass, more so than usual, apparently.
1: Another thing that was interesting in those handwritten notes from Lance was a memo that was dated four twenty nine ninety seven, and it states that Edgar Thompson had not been to see Heath since the first time. That is April, and the murders took place in mid-January, so several months have passed since Heath's court-appointed
0: lawyer had been to visit him and speak to him. That doesn't seem right at all to me, because you have a 20-year-old young man who was convicted of three counts of capital murder, and you're supposed to defend him, but yet you don't go see him for months. Do you remember what it was like working with the prosecutor's office at that time?
2: Yeah. As uncooperative as the rest of them, maybe worse. You know, I mean, you know, I I think Mike had to file a motion to get him to do anything. And and, and this is not unusual, but it's even worse when you've got a high profile defendant. The whole town was like uh, trying to crack an impregnable egg. That's what the whole case seemed to be like. I I mean, and then looking back on it, I, I see why. We could have done wonders with that information had it been given to us properly. And you have nobody to blame but the family, and I'm sorry. I, I mean, were they being influenced by somebody else? Hell, I don't know. I just know that that was, to find that out later, and I don't want to harp on it, but I blame them for that particular. Now, for what happened to to, to him and what he, he went through. I mean, hell. I mean, dying and going to hell. Uh, But that's a different thing. All I'm talking about is how much they could have helped us. Ergo, helped Heath. That's not that unusual. People's ignorance of the law is disastrous.
1: One thing that Edgar Thompson does do is set up a meeting with people who are close to Heath, his family members, friends, and people who can
0: kind of speak to the type of person that he is. And this meeting takes place at a local church. Oddly enough, though, he doesn't invite Matt Carter or Lance. To this meeting he just sends them the notes afterwards and this is a really interesting meeting
1: it definitely is there's a lot of information being given to edgar and just random tidbits about heath different things that certain people have heard him say in passing or experiences that they've had with heath another person who was also at the meeting was keith anthony who was heath's college roommate
4: his grandma called me and they wanted to come in and just see what they can talk about, see so if they can find anything that wanted to happen. You know, just, just the lawyers just trying to get information on, on him to try to give him less less censure or whatever.
0: Did he ever mention anything that Jack was training him to do?
4: I told the lawyers this. Mm-hmm. We had a meeting. We had, it was always his grandmother, me, a couple of our friends, aunts, uncles, grandpa. He was still alive then. And Jack was sitting right beside me. And I said somebody named Joe, Jim, Jake, they said, Jack? I said, yeah, that's him, Jack, was trying to make him an assassin. He said, it couldn't be Jack, he's sitting beside you. I'm like, it wasn't him then. (laughs) But he talked about him being, making an assassin, making him a sniper, get him into the Marines to make him a sniper or an assassin. And he talked about, I was like, man, you don't, man, come on, really? But, I mean, that's, and I told the lawyer that. Before it ever even happened, he was sitting right there beside me. Mm-hmm. I looked at him and I said, Well, I guess it wasn't him then. And they say it was him, then again, it was never mentioned again. But it was for trying to find some reason why he did what he did. They kept asking, You know, what was, what was life here? You know, what things here? It was just to try to help def- get the defense for Heath. was before the court date, okay. his original court date. So it's before the trial happened.
0: Okay, so going to that
4: meeting, you thought you were going to be helping. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, you know, we were telling everything about him. Me and him did get a little trouble in you know, Hot Springs, he got pulled over and had a little too much to drink and stuff like that. But it was just, you know, I was just trying to help him. And I thought me saying that was supposed to say, okay, this is me looking at that. But once I said it, it was, it was, I've had two different people show me that's, that had information on that, on that meeting, and what I said was never put in anything.
0: Really,
4: I've had the lawyer I talked to a couple years ago said, "You said what?" And I said, "I said this in this meeting," and it was in his records. It was never brought up that I said that. Yeah. Back in probably the late nineties, someone called me. I told them that, and they was like, "This is no, no, nobody said anything that you said this." I, I told them exactly what was, this was about him trying to be an assassin, about the Boy Scout leader doing it or Jack doing it, and. It, it was never written anywhere.
0: So why do you think they specifically let that out?
4: Because who Jack was now. Because he was such he was such a high society, and because the grandma said, no, he would never do that. He's sitting beside you. And, and, boom, it was gone. So it's who he was in the community that, you know, they didn't want it brought up. Because either some knew what was going on, or, this his power over the community because like i said he had that community hold befumbled or wherever you know and 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 it was he had the hold of that community
0: can you maybe kind of i guess help set the stage like how, the overall feeling of that meeting like what was the what was the church like what was the feeling like
4: it, it, it was in church he's right it was, in, it was in that church it was just i don't think the lawyer was trying to find anything i think the lawyers just just dared to to get through it. I don't think he was looking for anything really, because anything we said, there was nothing, I just don't think the lawyer was, was trying to, I think it was just a, just a point of corner lawyer that just trying to get through the thing.
0: So you're it, talking about Edgar Thompson then, right? That was his lawyer? That, that, yeah, yeah.
4: I, I, I don't think he really was trying to, I think it was just, he's done it, let's just get through the trial. Because if, if a lawyer, if I said what I said, any lawyer with worth anything would have said, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And well, again, it was never brought up again.
0: So, who was leading that meeting
4: then? He was, or the lawyer was, and some of the, I think, yeah, think yeah, sort of the lady, I can't remember who she was. But they were, they were kind of asking a lot of questions, but it was, like I said, it was nothing that I think would, would, would help. I kept telling the guys, he would not have hurt his sister. He loved his sister. And I, that's I just that's why I said, guys, he's not gonna hurt his sister. Something, something's up here, guys. He's not gonna hurt his sister. And that's why I, I kept saying, Dad, Mom, okay, but not his sister. Uh, he just, he just wasn't gonna hurt his sister.
0: What was the general feeling of the people at the meeting? Were they shocked, sad, angry?
4: Yeah, it was a lot of shock. Uh, of course, it was. You know, it was. It was. Everything was still. It, I, it hadn't. It, it didn't. The meeting wasn't long after it happened, and so it was all kind of new, it was all kind of a new situation. Two of the girls he dated were with me. It was all still in shock. Who were the girls? Jan mm-hmm. and the other one was Kelly. Mm-hmm. I think Kelly stuck with him for a pretty good while when he went to prison. She really cared for him for a pretty good while. I hadn't heard much from her. We were all just, just in shock, so.
0: Sure. Were you surprised by the reaction that you got when you said that about Jack?
4: Yeah, because they just blew it off. No one asked more questions about it, because I'm like, man, somebody was trying to make an assassin, why blow it off? If somebody just killed three people, and I'm saying somebody's trying to make an assassin, what lawyer would not go through with that and say, all right, let's look more than that, either get me by myself or something? You can't blow that off. They sure did. It was never written down in any transcript from that meeting. After you found out who
0: Jack was, what was your impression of him?
4: Typical guy, you know, I mean, once or twice we went, we, after there, went back to her, his grandma's house and had a big, had a family dinner. We were all invited. and he was there. You know, he mingled amongst everybody just like he was just one of the people. His facade, you know, he he, he played it well. But I guess you gotta do that to be that for what, 40 years or 30 years, I don't know, that I guess you've got to be a, a true evil person to be able to do what he did and look this way he did to clip people in the face and talk to them, knowing this happened. To
0: go to their house after that yes, meeting? Yes,
4: yes. He was there, I mean, like he was just a uh, head chicken. What was,
0: what was he acting like, do you remember?
4: Or? Just typical, just just how do you do? Hey man, I'm so can't believe this happened. Like any typical person would, would do that. You know, just like me and you were happening at a funeral. You know, just, it was just, he was just, yeah, it still blows my mind how you can do that. But yeah, it was just a typical, like it was every day, he was just as sorry as I was about it happening too. He had no idea what happened.
0: So would you, do you think that he was like, was he
4: like a type of person, was he commanding the room or was he more yeah. quiet? He was the top dog. He was, you know, I'm here you know, to be the helper, to be the, the, the sole, here's my shoulder, crowd my shoulder person. You know, I'm, I'm here to help you all to get through this. I can't believe he did this. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew him my whole life, I didn't, you know, I never would have dreamed he would do something like this. Like I said, he was the head chicken, you know, in, in the whole flock.
0: It was also very interesting to me to hear Jack's demeanor at that meeting. Not just that meeting, but also Dorothy Stocks, Heath's grandmother, had people over afterwards to get together and eat some food and just talk. And it was really interesting to hear what Jack was acting like at Dorothy's house. And also we should mention too, Dorothy was very close to Heath. They were close throughout his entire growing up. And that was Joe's mom. And she supported Heath up until her recent passing. According to
1: Keith, Jack is just walking around acting very normal, nonchalant, greeting people. And obviously knowing what we know now, it's
0: just very sinister and creepy. It feels like he had to make sure that he inserted himself anywhere just to know what was being said. That's one thing that
1: seems to be a common occurrence in a lot of investigations, that somebody who always seems to be inserting themselves into the investigation ends up having
0: much more involvement than it initially seemed. Like they're just sticking around, staying close so they can hear what's happening and where everybody is at in the investigation. Almost using it as a way to kind of stay one step ahead. Kelly Cunningham also shared her experience with authorities, not being interested in what she had to say about the case. I just remember the next thing, me being in like a room
1: in the, it's not a pool house, but it's the, it was the on-campus apartments that were fairly new, that had a pool and, and like the laundromat and everything was in that main building in the center. And so I went in there and talked to them and all I could think of was, Jack was training him to be an assassin. This kind of makes sense now. This may be something they need to know, and I would be honestly surprised if they even had written anything down about it because they weren't interested in what I was saying to them. I guess they just thought it wasn't pertinent
0: to the, you know to their information. Another way that we've been told that Jack inserted himself into the investigation was a meeting that was held at a lake at a cabin at Greer's Ferry Lake. We've been told that it was put together by Steve Finch and there were four different families that were there. He had the case file with him. It was a tape recorded meeting. We have information from some people who have actually listened to those tapes. What's interesting about that though, is during that meeting, Jack and his wife were there and Jack kept asking, did Heath implicate anyone else? Did he say anyone else was involved? Did he say anyone was there? We do have a copy of an email from Mark Buffalo's wife from many years ago before her passing where she had told someone that there was a group of couples who hung around together. This group decided to go away on a retreat. The deputy who arrived at the Stocks house the night of the murders went with them. He also brought Heath's file and answered questions from everyone. It was all recorded on a cassette. Her friend brought a copy to her for her to hear. She said she still wishes she had that copy. She heard Jack ask if Heath implicated anyone else in the murders. She heard Jack ask if this deputy thought Heath would ever be released from prison. She heard Jack ask if Heath had many visitors in the county lockup. She says, honestly, my friend and I discussed if Jack was involved. She also questioned the legality of the retreat. So when we talked to Mark, we asked him if his wife had ever mentioned that meeting to him. And here's what he had to say. So a few people have said that your late wife had mentioned a meeting that had taken place about a month after the murders that was arranged by Steve Finch. And there were four couples in town that attended, including the walls. And the deputy had taken a file out there and recorded it all on cassette. And they had said that, you know, your late wife had heard those tapes and mentioned that Jack had been asking the deputy if, you know, if he had ever been, if he would ever be released from prison or if he had implicated anyone else. Did she ever mention anything about that to you?
3: I have vague
2: recollection recollection of it that she might have mentioned it, but you know, I I don't feel real comfortable talking about that because I mean, if there were tapes and, uh, tapes, I never heard them. Uh, but I mean, I, like I said, I, I vaguely remember her saying something about that.
1: What really stands out to me about that meeting is the fact that the open case file was there. This was an active investigation. These things are supposed to be kept confidential. It doesn't seem right that this group of people are are going over this open case file.
0: No, you have Heath still sitting in the county jail. He hasn't even been to court. He hasn't even been tried or had a plea deal done. Things are still up in the air on what's going to happen to him. And you take the case file and take a bunch of people to a lake and talk about it. And in
1: such a small community where some of these people or likely people they know would have eventually ended up being members of the jury had
0: the case went to trial. We've asked people about it because obviously people have mentioned that it happened. People don't want to talk about it. We have a document from Jack written just a couple of years ago where he mentions that that summer he and his wife were asked to a potluck at a cabin at Greer's Ferry Lake. There, the murders were discussed with a sheriff's deputy presenting a case description. I was not mentioned or confronted. So right there, Jack is confirming that the meeting did in fact take place. And also trying to let everyone know that no one thought he had anything to do with it.
1: When we were talking to Mac, he mentioned that him and Lance had went to visit Heath and talked
0: to him.
3: Lance and I began our investigation, of course, by talking to the client. What was your initial impression of him? He was he was sullen. He was depressed. I know that. Came off somewhat arrogant to me, but uh, he was depressed, major, major depressed. And um, it, it's it's I mean, he spoke so highly of Jack Walls. I know that. And but he, he was he seemed like a smart ass to me. But he was depressed. There's no doubt about that. More than anything else.
0: So what kind of things did you ask him? Then?
3: What are you talking about, the uh, specifics of the murder?
0: Yeah, did you ask him, you know, well, you, obviously you said you asked him about abuse. Um, well,
3: yeah, and um, that was basically the reason. Um, he had had all he could take with his father. Then his mother and sister walked in. That's what he was upset about more than anything. It's his mother, and but mostly about his sister. fact that she was killed. There's nothing more that got to him, more than that. But there was no real understanding of why that occurred after the father was killed. I recall the crime scene photographs, it seems his sister was, the phone cord was apparently shot during the Well, I think it was a forty-five caliber that was used, but uh, it had been shot and severed, but it was still with her on the floor. She she was calling somebody. That was the initial, what he told me initially, and that was his story. Part of our investigation, I had Lance always look at the logbook to see who was visiting the client, and he saw... Jack Walls, who had been visiting, some other people, but it uh, looked like Jack Walls had been there, if I recall correctly, a couple of times. And we didn't know who Jack Walls was, although the Lone Oak's fairly close to Little Rock. You know, it's a small, enclosed community. So we interviewed Heath, and he was distraught, depressed, and eventually he talked to us, and when, when we asked about Jack Walls, who this was, and he told us, well, he was like more of a father to me than my biological father. And I was like, well, what, what? we found out he was a scout leader and we thought immediately, this is good mitigation, you know. And he's come and visited our client. And so we talked about Heath, about that somewhat, who Jack Walls was. And Heath told us that his father was um, prominent within the town. I believe he was a former judge. But he had a law office next to the courthouse, and we were behind the court. We were at the jail, told us where his office was. So we said, well, fine, we'll go visit him and, and see what we can find out and get some leads on who to talk to. And I seem to recall he said Jack, the younger Jack, was uh, out of town or something. I don't know. But So we left the jail, and Lance and I proceeded over to just pop in on Jack Walls at his law office. I recall that visit vividly because it was strange. We went in, and he let us come in, sat down in his office, and we started, you know, asking questions. Well, what do you know about Heath stocks? And we, you know, we understand your son was the scoutmaster, and it was a weird vibe in there. And there wasn't a whole lot of information forthcoming. There seemed to be questions at us about... Well, uh, why are you talking to me? And, all, and we explained to him mitigation and what we were doing in Heath's case. We noticed that his son had visited Heath a few times. And so we're just trying to piece things together and find some folks to talk to who may can provide us a picture of who Heath Stocks is and how this could have happened and just try to understand it more. He was not forthcoming with very much information. And when Lance and I left that meeting, and it was brief, we both were just looking at each other like, that was weird. Something, what, what was that? Why did we get that type of reception? And we asked Heath that. And he's like, oh, I don't know. He's just brushed it off.
0: Lance also shared with us his experience meeting Heath, and later, Judge Walls. So you mentioned a little bit about heat. Uh What was your initial impression of him?
2: I was not very impressed with him. He was arrogant, he was uncooperative, and I just remember thinking, oh man. And it took a long time for us to, uh, I, I think he was very distrustful, and of course you couldn't have any sympathy for him because we didn't know of this other horrible, and the stuff that came up later, and I believed A lot of it was from the bestiality to, it was some of the worst shit I had ever read and I've read some bad shit.
0: So did you ever meet with Judge Walls?
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
0: Can you tell us about that meeting?
2: Yeah, that was bizarre. Yeah, he was, you're talking about Jack's daddy. Yes. uh, The the retired judge, the CIA man. Yes. He was, couldn't have been, he, he couldn't have been any nicer, maybe even a little, too nice, and it just was like he was bending over backwards for us, and it was like he wanted to know what we knew. (laughs) He started asking us questions, and of course, loggers know how to subtly, and then not so subtly, but we felt like he was kind of probing around to see what we knew, and I remember we got in the ride and looked at each other, and one of us said, what the fuck was that? It was just bizarre how nice he was and he was super cooperative and then he was really chatty and it made me think well is this guy the spokesman uh, for the whole thing and have all the other witnesses been told look the judge will take care of this and in this line of work you have to think of all possible things that you can think of and i don't care how many things you think of there are a few more that you haven't and some of the things that end up happening are out of the wildest imagination Judges are empirical anyway, but in a small town, you almost are looking, well, where's his crown? And you know, your honor and all that, but in a small town, they run the show, whether they're retired or still working. Judges in small communities like that are the kings of the... If there was a fiefdom, the judge would be at the, at the top of that local ladder.
1: And we have to remember at this point that Heath is still relying on Jack. Jack is telling Heath that he's going to help him out of this situation. So Heath is
0: still very much under Jack's control, even though he's in jail. So Mac is sent down there as the death penalty attorney before he even knew if Heath was actually going to be charged with the death penalty. Larry Cook hadn't decided yet, but he thought it's probably going to be on the table because you have three counts of murder against him.
1: So Mac meets with Heath's family, and he tells us that they weren't very forthcoming in his experience with them. Originally, Heath was going to plead not guilty, and that would mean that they would go to trial. And that's something that made the family very nervous. They knew that the death penalty was potentially going to be on the table, and they wanted to go the route of a plea deal to kind of ensure that Heath wouldn't be facing the death penalty.
3: I remember Larry Cook being very hesitant about it. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. He had not made up his mind. I knew, you know, because usually what prosecutors will say, well, we've got to talk to the victim's family, see if they'll be on board for this. I'd already done that I'd done that but it took that letter and something in writing I don't know if y'all have that I may have it somewhere but it took that before he made the offer and when he made the offer Heath was ready to go and to do it still no talk of Jack Walls or anything else and we had not even met Jack Walls except for his father why do
0: you think Larry
3: took so long? I, I really don't know and, you know, uh, maybe he was conflicted. I don't know at all. I, I can't figure that out, and it may, have, may be a simple explanation. But I know that no one in that family pushing him to go to trial. They all wanted it done with quickly, save the family from pain. And, Nobody wanted to go through appeals. No one wanted to relive the events at trial. And I don't know if Larry Cook knew about these allegations. Jack Walls, but I mean, if Hogan, which that had happened a few years earlier, I believe, who had raised these issues, he was basically ostracized from the community and from what he told me. Mr. Hope. And that's who I spoke with. And uh, after all this came out, but I don't know. If Larry knew, you know, I'm not going to presume that he did. If he knew about these allegations, I mean, seems like everyone did there. Now, after it came out, but people were hesitant to do that. They don't know if Larry's thinking, well, I don't care. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to bring this out. Maybe he was conflicted about that, but I don't even know that he knew of these allegations of Jack against Heath. But I, don't, I That's something I
0: haven't figured out. Larry Cook, the prosecutor at the time, had been at the crime scene at 12.53 a.m. His name had come up a lot in the FOIA documents that we looked at, including him being the one that closed the investigation on Jack on the Hogan case. So we reached out to him, but he did not return our request for comment. Think about this for a minute. Heath's family doesn't know the law like an attorney. Obviously, they don't understand that it could go to trial and there could be extenuating circumstances. They were scared of him potentially getting the death penalty. So they really pushed that plea. They had just lost their entire family. And Heath was their only living family member alive still. Their only connection to Joe, Barbara, and Heather. Heath's Aunt Janice shared with us what she remembered about that time.
5: He was there at county jail for a while. I can remember we, could, we all went to visit him. He was appointed counsel. But like I said, Heath, you know, when we went to visit him, uh, it was family, and Jack Walls was there too. At the Lionel County County uh, Jail, he went in to visit with him. I mean, like I said, we, we, were, we didn't have a clue, or I didn't. And then, uh, of course, there was all the media. It was a circus. I can remember we got called to the courthouse. The public defender wanted to know our thoughts, the family's thoughts on it was capital murder, and uh, of course, no one wanted to see him get the death penalty. And so the grandparents, you know, all made statements that they didn't want that to happen.
0: How'd they communicate that to you? That, that was a possibility.
5: Well, they said he was gonna be charged with capital murder, and then the only two options would be the death sentence or life without parole. To the best of my memory, that's what was said. We were at the courthouse there.
0: What were your feelings when you heard that he could get the death penalty? He? Mm-hmm.
5: Well, no one wanted that. I had never had any experience with the court system. And like I said, it was just all so much. It was traumatic, we were in shock. And really, it was the grandparents, they're all deceased now, that were actually the first ones to be notified and talked to, although I was there at some of the meetings, and Bonnie was too.
0: Was anything said about a a trial or anything? Was that even, like, talked about with you guys?
5: Well, he was appointed, you know, a, a public defender, and no, I don't think they ever did see it going that far. I mean... There was a plea agreement. They they said that would probably just be the best. And we all just we all just believed it was for the best. We didn't know any different. In the beginning, Heath did think that Jack would help him, but I think they were just trying to get him out of Lono County. I think Jack Walls probably was scared to death. I'm sure he was doing everything that they could just to get Heath out of there as quickly as possible. I do believe uh, that was the case. I never heard or saw anything. I'm sure it was all behind closed doors. Sure. I mean, I know the family thought goodnight that he was a
0: friend. So... His Aunt Bonnie also shared what she remembers with us as well. Can you maybe walk us through the time period um, between when Heath was arrested and when he was sentenced?
6: When he was arrested, they they told us that they did not. See, they arrested him and they told us that they were not going to put it out in the public. I can't remember. There was some reason why they were going to postpone it a little bit. I think it was so they could get through the weekend and they could start fresh at the beginning of the week. He was in custody, but nothing had been charged or anything like that. He was brought in to talk to us, us being my parents and Barbara's parents. And that's when he said he was so sorry. He didn't mean to do it. He thought he could get them back and that didn't work. But there was absolutely no mention of Jack Walz, none. The families were invited to meet with the prosecuting attorney. He told us that there was a choice of, that he could take life without parole or they could, we could have a uh, trial And chances are he then would be death, you know, death sentence. And as a whole, we agreed that we'd rather see him three life sentences. But as far as I know, nobody ever gave that choice to Heath. It was a family decision, which looking at it from the outside now, that was a really awful way to, to approach it. I mean, here is somebody who was responsible enough to, Hold a gun and do whatever, but he doesn't have enough responsibility to decide how he should be treated in the courts. Of course, there's that Jack saying, you know, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. No problem. But I guarantee that in that the, in the town of Lone Oak, and with the contacts that his father had, the history of you know th- that whole family being very involved. There wasn't a chance in hell that they would ever make anything stick if, it, if they couldn't get enough stuff on it. So my gut would be, gut feeling would be, the power that it be. It's like, how fast can we get this and take care of it and get him out of here? There was nobody that was pushing for trial because we didn't know enough to know that there was any kind of extenuating circumstances. So they kind of
0: pushed and made that decision for him. The family decided that Heath was going to go ahead and
1: take the plea deal and plead guilty and avoid the death penalty. And Larry Cook got a lot of credit for that decision. There's even a newspaper article from the time where the family of Heath Stocks is publicly thanking Larry Cook
0: for the plea deal. This article is in the local newspaper and is dated June 11, 1997. And it's a statement from both sets of Heath's grandparents and was released right after the plea deal was made. And in it, they say that despite intense public pressure, prosecuting attorney Cook honored the unanimous wishes of our families when he allowed this plea bargain. Mr. Cook heard our pleas and responded as we requested. We are sincerely thankful for his decision. Another article we came across from around that same time period when the plea deal was accepted states that after the plea deal, neither Stocks nor his family would answer questions afterwards. But the family's pastor, the Reverend Robert Marble, passed out a statement on behalf of the family, which says, Heath is our only link to this family, the statement read in part. His remorse is genuine, but only God can grant him forgiveness. We can only pray that the Heath that we knew and loved will conquer the demon that committed this crime and will be able to make a positive difference. And someone else's life. So they obviously didn't understand that things could have turned out much differently if they had been looked at a little bit harder.
1: Obviously, at the time, all of the abuse that Heath has been going through was still under the rug. But who's to say that it might not have
0: potentially come out had the case gone to trial? I think there's a lot of things that would have come out had the case gone to trial. And like Peckett said in his interview earlier about the crime scene that night, had it gone to trial, it probably would have come into play that there was not a search warrant before these people were going in and out of the house. That's just one small thing that they would have been able to look at and if it had gone to trial.
1: And I think also the situation with the handwritten confession where it was written out without a witness, I think that might have been called into
0: question had the case gone to trial too. Just a lot of things that opened people up for questions. That's another thing that Mac mentioned when we talked to him is one of the first things they look at when they're investigating a case is was there abuse? Was there sexual abuse? And that was shut down immediately.
3: And so we proceeded to start interviewing the family. And we talked to Dorothy uh, who was uh, Heath's father's mother. She was a lot of help to us. And we went and uh, talked to Heath's mother's parents and sit down with them. And the course of interviewing family members who were also victims of the slain family. So that was a strange situation. You know, usually you've got the victim's family. A lot of times they didn't know who the defendant was. And this was, you know, within the family. So it was peculiar in that respect. Part of our litany of questions we asked to discover mitigating evidence. Circumstances is abuse, childhood abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. I asked those specific questions about sexual abuse, and oh no, no 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 sexual abuse. Jack Walls wasn't coming into our minds at this time because he was never mentioned to us as anything other than a father figure and a scoutmaster. And uh, but we would ask about physical sexual abuse. Oh, no, his father would whip him every once in a while, and, well, physical or sexual abuse by anyone else, any, any strange traumas, you know, within or without, outside of the family. No, no, no. Everyone denied that. I remember a meeting with the preacher. I can't recall his name, but... Uh,
0: Reverend Marble?
3: Possibly, if that was the one that's involved here, that Lance and I went to his church there. Let him concluded some business. Asked him the same questions, and at the time, you know, we had no idea that there had been something possibly confessed to him by Barbara Stocks, and that was not even on our radar. So he denied knowing of any abuse or anything like that, and cut 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 things short for uh, confidentiality purposes. on If he knew anything, it was covered by his confidentiality as a a preacher and parishioner. So we're just left walking around ignorant and looking for standard mitigation from witnesses and no idea about any of this. But things went very fast after that.
0: Very fast?
3: Yeah, do you know what the timeline was from the time I was appointed to when the plea was entered?
0: I think it was less than six months.
3: Yeah, it had to be think so too because that was the strategy you know you've got a triple homicide everything appears to be just brutally cold and then it appears that there's after they arrested heath and it looked like it was in the facts just on the paper it looks like an attempt to cover up to make it look like a robbery gone bad someone's in there robbing the house and the family returns home early and then the robbers killed to eliminate witnesses and take off. And then the jewelry and other artifacts are found Arkadelphia, which is what traced it back to Heath. It appeared to be a straightforward case based upon that. And beyond that, it, it, there was no appearances. What troubled me was why, you know? And all we had was the physical abuse of Heath's father towards him taking him out when he was a kid, making him box and fight and just basically a lot of corporal punishment going on and very little nurturing. So that was it. That was our angle we had. And I loved his mother and his sister, but it didn't make sense at all to us. Um,
0: So interestingly, you have the Hogan trial. That we know just happened a few years ago. We've talked about how many people should have questioned things at that point, and they didn't. And now you have this happen. You have someone in town then, and you have the death penalty attorney asking the family questions about this. Was there sexual abuse? And that didn't click with anyone. And unfortunately, we do have to mention that
1: Barbara's mother did know about the sexual abuse,
0: and she didn't say a word. Nor did Reverend Marble, who was also fully aware. There were multiple people that knew, and you just have these adults that push things under the rug. And Barbara's mother was confused. Your daughter has been murdered. Your grandson is potentially facing the death penalty. There was a gag order with the case. And so she thought a gag order meant you can't talk to anybody about anything. Obviously,
1: the family's not very familiar with the law and what they can and can't say. Edgar Thompson maybe had. A responsibility to help them out a little bit, maybe made sure that they
0: fully understood what was being talked about and put in front of them. He should have explained it a little better, because when you're in a position where you have information, it's your job, you understand that field, it's law. It's your responsibility to guide people with their options and what they should and should not do. Another thing I wanted to bring up is Mac Carter filed a motion to control the press. They were going crazy with this story. The small town painted Heath as a family killer, the psycho murderer, and it was all over the place. You can't really have a fair trial like that. So what was the press like during the
3: time? The press was running this video clip of Heath and I walking out of the county courthouse, Heath in shackles and... I was right behind him with the sheriff were leaning to the squad car. They were everywhere, one of the worst I'd seen, but there was a lot of attention for that case.
0: So do you think that people were there was any spe- speculation from anyone on it or that potentially the press was was swaying the case a certain way?
3: Well, there was enough of it that I filed a motion to, to uh, control it somewhat. I don't know if I put any facts or details in this motion. Highly publicized homicide in the county. I did state there has been massive, highly prejudicial publicity through this area and throughout the state regarding this matter. Television news agencies from Little Rock, the three stations, all have been extensively covering the matter. Let's see, I cite an example of prejudicial coverage. Repeated references to defendants' confession in their stories. The press, including local Lone Oak Press and the statewide Arkansas Democrat Gazette, has given extraordinarily a large amount of coverage to the case. Yeah, there was quite a bit of it, looks like. Now that I read this, yeah, one article characterizing defendant as aggressive, apparently something about state police speculating unfounded facts. Yeah, so I moved to control that for the court to control that. So, kind of
0: going back to the state hospital, who ordered the evaluation for Heath?
3: I think I did it. That may have been what started the rift with Edgar Thompson. I believe Judge Henshaw was on Edgar's butt about the delay, or I was delaying it. That possibly, I, I'm pretty sure I did it. I did it in a lot of cases. We would uh, sometimes discover mitigation that way. A lot of times we would not do it. if We had a pretty good defense on um, in the guilt or innocence phase because anything had client, a defendant says to the state hospital examiner, privilege is waived and it, it, it can be used against the client just like a confession to a police officer. And one of the things state hospital is going to ask, the psychologist will ask the client is, what's your version of the offense? And well, that comes in at a trial. But uh, we were trying to discover if there was any anything there. If we are going to go to trial, we'd hire our own expert.
0: So Heath is ordered to go to the state hospital for a mental evaluation so they can see what's going on and if he's really fit to stand trial. Upon intake, they interviewed him and they said that he was depressed and his judgment and insight were considered to be poor. And there's a lot of interesting things about the FOIA documents we reviewed from the Arkansas State Hospital. He was supposed to be there for 30 days. He was there a couple weeks. During that time... His attorneys had told him, don't discuss the actual case. They had him on suicide watch. They wouldn't let him call his attorneys because of the suicide watch. In addition to that, they were having a lot of issues getting documents from Larry Cook. He was sending stuff to the state hospital, but not sending it to Mac and Lance. And so, again, the chase happened where they're running around trying to see what Larry Cook was sending, what the state hospital had, what they didn't have, and trying to put this case together when they don't have all the information that everyone else has. So after being there about a couple of weeks, the report says... On February 22, 1997, this physician received a page that Mr. Stocks was possibly involved with several other patients and planned to elope from the hospital. Another patient had taken the keys from a public safety officer without the officer's knowledge. Further details were gathered regarding the allegations. There was no concrete evidence that Mr. Stocks was involved. However, this physician believed that further inpatient evaluation on Mr. Stocks was not necessary. So they ended up discharging him from the state hospital because they said that the risks of having him there outweigh the benefits of what could be obtained by him continuing there, which doesn't make a lot of sense because if he was found to not be involved in that escape plan, what risks were they talking about? It's another one of those situations where you're not really sure if something
1: is fishy, so to speak, but it does raise some questions, I would say, at the very
0: least, especially because they said that they were going to complete the evaluation on the defendant at a later date. So after talking to Heath, they did complete that evaluation, but it was one hour of questions at the county jail in which then they told him to follow up with the mental health services at the jail, which did not exist. So it was kind of strange. The judge would order a 30-day inpatient psych eval for three cases of capital murder. And then they discharge him after a couple weeks because of an escape attempt that he was found not to be involved in. So another crazy thing about that Arkansas State Hospital stay was there's notes under his marital status. And it says that he's never been married, has no children. He has a current girlfriend. He's had several different female friends in the past. And the patient's family reports that the patient did have a sexual relationship with a former instructor at a fairly young age. And as a result of some problems around that issue, the patient did attend counseling. The records from Kenneth Count's PhD indicate the patient had this relationship from age 13 to approximately 14 and a half. It's so crazy to me that they call that a relationship instead of abuse. Exactly. Your 13-year-old boy and this town, including the doctors at the Arkansas State Hospital, are saying that it was a relationship. This is the same instructor that we talked about in a previous episode that took Heath's virginity and obviously had enough impact on him that he required counseling for it. So again, call it what it is. It's
1: sexual abuse of a child, not a relationship. Not only were Heath and Jack corresponding over the phone and having in person visits while he was in jail, they were also writing letters to each other. And here's one that Heath wrote to Jack Jack, I'm sorry I haven't written sooner. I wish I had the words, old friend, but they seem to fail me. I really don't know what happened. I need a favor if you could. The guns I had. Will you sell them for me? I really could use the money right now. Just get what you can, and I won't complain a bit. At a time like this, I really could use some help. I can't do a thing. You've been like a father to me, and I hope that someday we can visit together again. My life is now a question, and no one seems to know the answers. Write me back, please, and tell me if you can help me out. I'll keep in touch. I'd really like to hear from you. Your
0: friend, Heath. And here is Jack's response. Dear Heath, Sorry that I haven't written sooner, particularly since I got your letter, but I put off writing because I didn't really know what to say. Maybe I'm over that now. I don't know how much exposure you have to the outside, but spring is in full swing now. The weather is really warming up and the snakes are coming out. I'll go out after them if it will stop raining. We've been really busy around our house, I left a skillet full of grease on the stove back in January and smoked the house up real bad. We had to paint most of the downstairs and buy a new stove. Pam got a new tile floor and some wallpaper out of the deal. It was time to do some remodeling after 22 years, but that was not the way I planned. I guess you know that Carrie's getting married this summer. She and Pam are busy planning on that most of the time. And all that time, she's here in Lone Oak. She graduates in May, but we'll have to go one session of summer school to finish. You asked me to sell your guns that were in my home. This was done at the estate sale, and the proceeds will be used to pay bills. The money was all put into the estate at the time of the sale. I came to see you last Saturday and found out I could only come on Sunday, and that was Easter, so I'll try and get by this Sunday. I talked to your grandmother Dorothy last week on the phone and saw Martin at the Frog Lake Supper Thursday. They seem to be doing okay. I'm starting a new job in a couple of weeks. I will head the ammunition product service department, meaning I will handle ammunition complaints. I'm looking forward to that after almost 25 years in production. Heath, I've been thinking of you a lot, and I'm sorry I haven't written or come by to see you. I'll try to do better. Jack Walls. Those are interesting letters, Katie. Absolutely. When you read Heath's letter to Jack,
1: you can tell that he's reaching out for help. And I'm not just talking about with selling his guns.
0: He is saying, please talk to me. Please guide me. And this is his father figure that he's had for over a decade now. The person that he turned to for anything. And he's trying to get help. And to me, Jack's response was very peculiar. Talking about snakes in the summer and the stove catching on fire. It doesn't seem to me that that's something that you'd say to someone who was just charged with three counts of capital murder and is in jail asking you to help them.
1: Yeah, it's just it's all very strange and it makes you wonder
0: what is Jack really trying to say here? It definitely seems like there's at least a few hidden messages in that letter.
1: Yeah, especially the line with the snakes in the grass and I'll go after them if it stops raining. It's kind of like a sick twisted puzzle. That really is the best way to sum it up. So as a result of all of this uncertainty when it comes to the legal proceedings and how things work, Heath ends up pleading guilty to capital
0: murder. And as a result, he receives three life without parole sentences. So that means he is locked up for the rest of his life with zero percent chance of parole. So since Heath was under Jack's control, do you feel that he was in a way under the influence and manipulation of Jack when he made his plea deal? In a sense, Heath might have been trying to protect his abuser.
3: Oh, yeah, I I believe that without a doubt that, um, you know, Jack visiting him. Yeah, I believe Jack was encouraging them. I mean, that's let's get this and closed, and then I'll help you later. We'll, you know, get you out later. It wouldn't be surprise me the amount of influence Jack Walls had over Heath, that Heath was willing to just spend the rest of his life in prison to protect him. A man like that, being conditioned for as long as Jack Walls had conditioned Heath Stocks, yeah, he'd feel, you know, just like a soldier probably laid down his life for his cause. I had no hesitation in thinking that. There was that much influence, no. Trust me, if we were going to trial, if we had geared up to go to trial, we're preparing for trial, I have no doubts whatsoever. I would have found this out. There's no doubt, because we had covered every stone wherever we went. We pissed a lot of people off in small towns and small jurisdictions all across the state. Certain places, we, I mean, it was a fearful time investigating. I was on all investigations. I was private investigator before I became mm-hmm. a lawyer and so I I love to investigate and find out what really happened, but we would have found this out, I have no doubt. I'm sure Lance will tell you the same thing.
0: So do you think that it would have played out differently in the sentence had this all been known and it had gone oh, to trial?
2: Of course it would have. Hell yes. God only knows how much better a verdict or plea that he would have gotten had he, and I, I, it still just mystifies uh, me to the, to the core uh, why, and the only answers to me uh, why is heavy pressure, money, or just plain dumb. I don't know. As you can tell, it still kind of works me up. Nothing with this case would surprise me. I mean, literally nothing.
1: In the next episode, a pivotal moment occurs that turns the town
0: on its head and changes everything. What happens when all of Jack's secrets are finally revealed? Will the town of Lone Oak rally to support him like they've done before? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you... By Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks Family, the Harris Family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.